We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, in Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 1, I read, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated under the gospel of God. Now that's my take, separated under the gospel of God. Now, verse number one tells me two great things about the apostle Paul, uh, a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm that, and there are many others of you in the building tonight who are that, and we're not being proud uh, when we say that. Every believer is a bond slave to the Savior. That's why you tithe. That's why you're here tonight. That's why you're here every win- uh, Sunday night and Wednesday night, Sunday morning. That's why you'll live for the Lord tomorrow morning. That's why you're honest and upright and holy is because you're a servant of Jesus Christ. Every man that's saved is a servant of Jesus Christ. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And so Paul had nothing any different from that which I enjoy. And you enjoy, as far as the first thing that's said about him in verse number one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And we all are. But the second thing said about Paul is said only about him and is not true about any of us in the building. Call an apostle. Now, I'm not an apostle. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower. I'm a learner. I'm a servant. I'm a believer. But I'm not an apostle. Now, I know the, the arguments about that also. I hear every once in a while of a man who says, I am an apostle, and this is the church of the apostolic faith, and we are uh, apostles by succession, right down from the 12 apostles of Jesus. Don't you leave a word of that. There are only 12 apostles, only 12, not 13 or 11, but only 12 apostles. And Paul happened to be number 12. Now, the disciples selected Matthias in Acts chapter number 1. But with all due respect to Matthias, he was not God's choice. God's choice was Paul. Now, in the winding up all things in the end of the age, in the foundation of the wall, a foundation rather, of the city of God, the new Jerusalem that I read about in the Revelation, are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. Now, that's out in the future. Now, if there were many other apostles, or 24 apostles, or 48 apostles, then it would be a misnomer to think of 12 instead of 48 being inscribed in the foundation of the holy city. No, the fact that these 12 names are inscribed in the foundation is an indication that that's all they are. All they are, all 12 is all, that's all. There won't be any more. I'm not an apostle. An apostle had certain attributes and characteristics that no other believers have ever enjoyed. Uh, The apostles, for example, wrote the Holy Scriptures. And then the apostles had power to perform all kinds of miracles. Now, I think any believer can pray and get miracles from God and answers to his prayer from the Lord. But there's a limitation uh, to our prayer line. And there's a limitation to what our prayers can do. Now, we've had a lot of of, uh, sadness and bereavement and death in our church circle within the past several weeks. And if I had been an apostle, then I could have prayed, and maybe some of those that have died would be in these pews tonight living. The apostles resurrected those that had died, but I don't have that power. 
And there isn't anybody in the earth that has that power. Now, I know there's some that may claim to have seen that kind of miracle performed, but actually I question that. Now, the apostles had that power. Paul had that power himself to resurrect the dead, but you don't have that. That, po that power, that authority was given to the apostles as a sign long before the New Testament was ever completed and the New Testament was ever fully written. These signs followed the apostles as a witness to an unbelieving generation that these men indeed were different men endued with a different power and a different authority from any other men in all the age, uh, region around about Jerusalem. So in that sense, I'm not an apostle, and nor are you an apostle, nor any other preacher you may think of an apostle. But Paul was called an apostle. And there is no doubt in my mind about it. As far as I'm concerned, I'm settled that it was Paul who was God's choice rather than Matthias. Called an apostle. Now note he says separated under the gospel of God. Now that wasn't always so about the apostle Paul. There were times in his life when he was an enemy to the gospel of God. Uh, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, uh, he then had papers in his body and on his body, giving him the authority to apprehend and to arrest any that he found in the Jesus way in the city of Damascus and bring them in bonds back to Jerusalem for imprisonment. And Paul fully intended to carry out that commission to arrest and to apprehend and bring back and to imprison any that he found in the Jesus way in Damascus. And had not God intervened with the conversion of the apostle Paul, somebody would have come back with Paul to Jerusalem to have been in prison. But he was separated on that trip. God intervened. God broke in upon him and separated the apostle from that kind of life and made him the apostle that he later became by the grace of God, separated under the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't think Paul planned that. I'd, I question whether he premeditated on that. And I question whether his parents decided that he'd be a great apostle, a great servant, like Hannah decided that for young Samuel, I doubt. I doubt that. I, I think God broke in upon the apostle Paul without Paul giving it much thought. Now, if, if there was any pre-conviction prior to the Damascus Road, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, nor does Paul ever say anything about it. And had there been much pre-conviction, as many times as Paul told his experience, he would have certainly said something about it. But God broke in upon him and separated him instantly and miraculously under the gospel of God. I marvel at that. Uh, the, the thing that happened to Paul was exactly what happened to John the Baptist. Now John came for a purpose. John was born for a purpose. John was born with a ministry in mind. And when John came into the world, it was for that ministry that he was to perform. He was born for that purpose. And John the Baptist was separated from his mother's womb for the ministry that God ordained for him. Now, Paul was not separated quite that early, but he was separated in the mind of God even from his birth. And then in actuality, he was separated under the gospel on the Damascus Road as he went to persecute those in the Jesus way. Oh, what a thing that is. What a power that is. Now, I said that to remind you that God can still do that today. And he does that today. 
I believe the Lord works uh, according to his own schedule and plan. And I'm sure that when God needs a missionary, needs a teacher, needs a singer, or needs a pastor, or needs an evangelist, God's able to raise that person up whom he may need. And God's not, hadn't lost his power or his authority, and he's well able to bring on the scene any time a John or an Apostle Paul and separate that man to the ministry, to God's glory. You know, there's one thing about every God-called preacher, and that one thing is that he's God-called. If God calls a man, mother doesn't do it, and friends don't do it, churches don't do it, God does that. And I believe in a personal call for every pastor and evangelist. And if God hadn't given you a call, then you just decided. And if you just decided, you'll soon become a dropout. But when God gives you a call, you don't drop out, you see. You stay with it right on to the end of your life. And you'll gladly do so. Call an apostle of Jesus, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, I didn't select the ministry. Uh, you've heard me say this before and, and how true it is. I didn't plan to be a preacher as a young man. I had no uh, reservations against it. And I, I would have not insulted you had you come to me as a teenager and said one day you'll preach. I would have not insulted you. I would have said that would be fine because I love the Lord then. But it didn't dawn upon me as a teenager that God would ever put his hand upon me to preach the gospel. I made no plans for that. I had no ideas about that. I planned something else for my life and meditated upon something else for my life. But when I was 25 years old, God, I broke in upon my plans and things changed. And that's been 31 years ago plus now. And by the way, next Lord's Day, I begin my 32nd year in the ministry. And uh, I didn't plan to be a preacher, but God separated me under the gospel. No question in my mind about that. And then I'm about the poorest pastor you ever heard and about the poorest preacher you ever heard, but uh, what I am, God made me. I am what I am by the grace of God. I didn't plan it. I didn't promote it. I didn't devise it. God took a crooked stick as I am, and he's been doing the best he can with a crooked stick for 31 years now, and I'm so glad that God separated me under the gospel. And I think God does that. And don't you be sure, so sure about what God may do you that way. You sit in these pews and you say, well, I feel sorry for you. I'd rather be a businessman. I can become wealthy. Or I'd rather do something else. I can be of a greater service and ministry. Don't be so, too sure about that. You may wind up doing what I've done for these 31 years. And there's one thing about it. If God puts you in it, you'll be glad and thrilled in the opportunity of having been placed and separated into the ministry, into the gospel by the good grace of God. Call an apostle separated under the gospel of God. Now look at the next verse, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now that's part of the gospel, concerning his son, Jesus. The gospel does concern his son, Jesus. In fact, there is no gospel apart from his son, Jesus Christ. Now verse 4, that gospel also declares... Jesus to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, brother, that verse has got authority in it and dynamite in it. And the gospel of God has verse 4 as the seal and token of the approval of God upon it. 
The gospel of God declares Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. Now, any gospel that puts any kind of a question mark about that is not the gospel of God. It's another gospel that Paul warned us about in the Galatian epistle. And any man that, that will bring Jesus down to any other level, you may say, well, I think he was a great teacher. He's infinitely more than that. You may say, well, I believe that he was a mighty prophet. He's infinitely more than that. Well, you may say, well, I believe he actually worked miracles. He's infinitely more than a miracle worker. He's God incarnate in human flesh. He is the Son of God. And the gospel declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power. And the authority for that power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact that he came out of the grave is all the seal and the guarantee and the token I need to declare him to be the Son of God. I'm preaching not a dead Savior. Now, I've been over to Jerusalem four times and visited there in the garden where the tomb is, where one time our body, uh, the body of our Lord lay. But I'd like to report to this congregation tonight that his body is not in that tomb. The only empty grave I have looked upon in all the span of my lifetime is the grave in that garden. It is empty, brother. It's empty. He is not there. He arose on the third day. Now, you might, you study the history of all other religions known to man, you'll find none that have a living Savior. All of them have their originator in a grave somewhere or in a, in a tomb or in a sepulcher somewhere upon this earth. But our originator, our Lord, our God arose from the grave and by his mighty resurrection, matchless resurrection, declared himself to be the Son of God with power. We serve a risen Savior. Amen. Now that's the gospel. I'm glad I believe that kind. I believe the Lord came out of the grave on the third day with, uh, with the keys of death and hell strapped to his side. And he said, John, don't be afraid. I'm he that was alive and was dead and am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and the grave strapped at my side. Oh, what a Savior we serve tonight. And that's the kind the gospel deals with, not this uh, modernistic kind, this watered-down kind, this nice kind, this Jesus the revolutionary kind. You know, I, I get fighting mad when they start talking about Jesus, a revolutionary. Yeah, the, these fellows that are, that are out in the streets now promoting revolution, they say, well, we get our example from the Lord. No, you're a liar. No, the Lord was not a revolutionary. There was never a more peaceful man that ever lived than the Savior. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Amen. And I resent my Lord being called a revolutionary by these hippies and these hippies. Now the gospel of God declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power and uh, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, I'll not read any further. I want to preach to you tonight on this question. Does the gospel work? Now maybe I should change my subject a bit. My subject is in the form of a question. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no question. But, uh, but I'll go ahead with my question nonetheless. So far as I'm concerned, I could say the gospel works. 
You say, well, I doubt it. Well, the proof is upon you. You prove to me that it doesn't. So far as I'm concerned, I'm persuaded that the gospel actually works. But I'll go on with my question. Does the gospel work? Now, we, we've reached a point where we have some folk on the horizon in our day uh, that say that the gospel is no longer relevant. And that preaching like I'm trying to preach tonight is a thing of the past. And it was all right in the last generation, but not for this modern, sophisticated day and educated day in which you and I now live. All of that uh, was all right for grandmother and granddad, but, but now we are more cultured and more refined and more educated, and we no longer need the ranting of a Baptist preacher like you do, and it's all now uh, irrelevant. And so the gospel is discounted, the gospel is shelved, the gospel is substituted by a lot of things. Uh, the ideas of religious minds have brought in a lot of substitutes for, for what we believe to be the gospel of the grace of God. Not too long ago, I, I read in the newspaper, our local newspaper, that on the campus at Furman, they were having a seminar. And all the preacher boys were coming together, and the chaplain of the university was going to lead the seminar, and here was the theme of the seminar. Uh, new methods that must become incorporated uh, in our services if we reach the people. Now, they were coming to a conclusion, and they'd already come to the conclusion by the very theme that they dealt with in that seminar, that the gospel doesn't work. And because they came to that conclusion, as far as I'm concerned, prematurely and unfounded and unwisely, but they came to that conclusion, and having come to that conclusion, they had a seminar to try to find some other method that we could incorporate in reaching people with the gospel. And these young preacher boys, young ministerial students, not many of them up there now, but a few there, are unlearned, unwise, as far as the ways and the wiles of the devil is concerned, uh, had it instilled in their young mind that the gospel doesn't work. The gospel no longer works. Now, the old-fashioned preacher got by with it, but that was the best he can do. And there's some holding on to it, but that's the best they can do. But we want to move on and advance with civilization, advance with society. And if we do the seminar bothered itself with, we'll have to find a new method of preaching. And the newspaper article said that uh, they were advocating the abolishing of the Sunday morning service. And they also, in that article in the newspaper, said that old-fashioned protracted meetings like we have at Tabernacle, like other churches have had all my lifetime, is a thing of the past. We'd have to uh, ditch that. No longer usable. So we can't have any more revival meetings, protracted meeting time, uh, revival time. Just ditch that. Nobody will come anymore. And uh, the uh, public invitation, the seminar suggested a public invitation is a thing of the past. Therefore, uh, no longer workable. Abandon the public invitation. Preach, but don't give an invitation anymore. That's a thing of the past. We don't want to play upon the emotions of people. And all that kind of stuff that seminar dealt with that week right here in our city. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't agree. I didn't agree with it then. That's been two or three years ago. Don't agree with it now. The gospel works. And I want to show you tonight why and how the gospel works. And uh, I think the things that I mention ought to be conclusive evidence and, and positive proof that the gospel does work. First, I remind you, the gospel works because of the plan of God. The plan of God. 
Now, I think all of you would agree, all of you in this building, and any that may be hearing the uh, message by radio, would agree that God has a plan for time, past, present, and future. I think God is the great grand master architect of all things, earthy and heavenly, terrestrial and celestial. And I don't think God started out in a hit and miss, trial and error sort of fashion, do you? I think when God made Adam out of the dust of the earth and started the human family down the pathway of time, that the great architect of time and the great architect of the souls of men had a certain plan behind all of it. Now, it seems to me that would be reasonable and practical. I think human beings are wise to have some plan or some order in your life. And certainly if a human being is wise to have some plan or order in his life, Almighty God would certainly not start out in the creation of man and then later in the redemption of man without a plan. A plan! Now my soul, as far as I'm concerned, before the stars were in their orbit and before the sun did give her light and before the moon ever reflected any ray of the sun, before there was a valley and a river that snaked its way down through the valleys, before there was an ocean bound by sandy beaches around the earth, before there was a man to walk upon the earth and enjoy the fruit and beauty of this God-created earth, before anything was made that was made, God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Ghost sat down in the corridors of eternity and planned the redemption of a sinner. And when down through the years in Genesis 6 and verse 15, I read that Abraham believed God and God counted his faith to him for righteousness. That didn't take God by surprise. God didn't have to scratch his head and say, I wonder what Abraham's up to. I think God planned that men become justified by faith long before Abraham ever believed God. God had a plan in the redemption of the human family. And the plan of God to redeem sinners is by the preaching of the cross to those that perish foolishness, but to we that are saved the power of God unto salvation. Now you search this Bible, please. Read it all and find any other method or any other plan that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost ever wrote down in this book as far as reaching souls is concerned. God's plan is the preaching of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, For it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching to save those that would believe. Now God planned that from the foundation of the world, and the fact that God planned it is proof and evidence enough that the gospel does work. Now if the gospel doesn't work, pray tell me what would. Now that seminar hit on some things that they were suggesting that might work, but I think they were far, far from the truth. If the gospel doesn't work, would reformation do it? If the gospel doesn't work, would ritual do it? If the gospel doesn't work, would, uh, would good works do it? If the gospel doesn't work, would giving your life at a fiery stake do it? If the gospel doesn't work, what other method can you find? Well, I'll work out some other way. No, you won't work out some other way. You come to God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
You say, well, I'll come to God my way. No, you won't. You're going to come the blood sprinkle way, the way of all other sinners. No, the gospel works because of the plan of God. Now, I'm preaching an old gospel. I preached the other night to you, or the other Sunday to you on the cross. And among the things I said about the cross is that it's an old cross, an ancient cross. And the gospel I'm preaching is as old as the mind of Almighty God, and that's ancient, brother. I haven't devised a new method. When God called me to preach 31 years ago, I didn't sit down and figure out a new way to preach and a new way to approach people. I picked up the message where my forefathers laid it down, and I, I, I picked it up where this book put it down. And I've been trying to preach this book ever since and don't plan to change. Amen. The gospel works because of the plan of God. Then number two, the gospel works because of the promise of God. Now may I remind you of this promise. Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now that's promise. If I be lifted up, I will draw. That's a promise. And I believe that. And then again, God says, my word shall not return unto me void. But my word shall accomplish the purpose for which I send it forth. Now that's a promise. That's a promise. Now when you're talking about the gospel failing and the gospel not being relevant and the gospel no longer working, then you're talking also about the promises of God becoming null and void and extinct. And that's a rather serious indictment for a wretched sinner like me and you, say by God's grace, to indict God because of the failure of some promise. No, no, my friend. Whatever God promised, the stars may fall from their orbit, but not a promise spoken has ever been broken, nor ever shall be broken. When God says it, let every man be a liar and God be so. The gospel works because of the promise of God. The promise of God is involved. Now that means that when I stand at the radio mic as I do every day of my life and have for 30 years and preach the gospel having no way of knowing who may be listening or the need of that listening heart, I can even so stand at that radio mic with full confidence and assurance that what I'm doing is what God wants done. Now I don't know, I don't know the answers to the sin problem in anybody's life. But when some sinner sits by the radio, though I may not know the answer, I've got it. And I may not be able to know all the details, but I've got the remedy. And I can preach the gospel and God can make the application to any sinner. And that sinner can find God, find the grace of God, and get converted. The promise of God is involved. And so I have confidence and assurance that what we're doing when we preach will not return to God void. Now, to illustrate further what I'm talking about, we send missionaries out. We have 20-odd of our own family, our own circle, our, our church circle. 20-odd of our young people scattered around the world tonight. I went up to the prayer room a while ago and prayed for them. And no doubt some of those missionaries right now are in a service, are finishing a service, are about to begin a service somewhere on foreign fields whose names are up on our church roll here in Greenville. And I'm proud of those missionaries. It takes a great deal of money. And by the way, we support about 75 others, but 20 are the members of this church. And it takes a great deal of money 
This church spends thousands of dollars. Last year, we invested more than $100,000 in missions around the world, home and around the world. And that's a lot of money. $100,000 is $2,000 a week. Now figure it up for yourself. That's $500 a day almost that our church spends to get the gospel around the world, around the world every single week. Now, I don't go home when I put my tithe offering in the offering pad at Tabernacle. I don't go home and toss on my pillow and scratch my head and lay and worry and say, now, Lord, reckon I did the right thing. I tithe today, and, and about 50% of my tithe will be uh, spent to, to get the gospel around the world. Do you think, Lord, I did the right thing? Do you, do you reckon, Lord, that it really is pleasing that these missionaries say goodbye and go around the world and carry the gospel? Do you think it's getting the job done, Lord? No, no, tell you the truth, I've never wondered about that. Never doubted that one bit, not one bit. I don't lose one moment of sleep over that. I put my tithe in this offering pan. We send these children around the world to preach with absolute confidence and assurance that my word will do that which God plans that it do. Amen, I believe that. Some of these days, these missionaries will come, bring in their sheaves with them. And you and I can rejoice and praise God over the victory they've attained preaching on the farm fields. You say, well, preacher, it might not work. Brother, it will work. It does work. Amen. Brother Jimmy Rose was home on furlough a few weeks ago, and you heard him say that the pastor, pastor at his church while he was home on furlough is one of his own converts, a Brazilian. Now we baptized Jimmy at Tabernacle. You sent him to Brazil with your tithe money. He was a Brazilian. God called him to preach. And while he was home on furlough, the Brazilian pastored his church in Brazil. The gospel works because of the promise of God. Now if the gospel doesn't work, then God's promises fall broken and unfulfilled. And if God's promise, one, if one promise is broken and one promise is unfulfilled, then John 3.16 might be broken. And brother, that's broken. We're all in bad shape, aren't we? No, not a promise spoken has ever been broken. Number three, the gospel works because of the purpose of God. God has a purpose in mind in the preaching of the gospel. Now the world has a perverted idea as to the purpose. The church in our day is indicted by the world for having failed. The world says today the church is a colossal failure. I have an article in my, in my Bible that I've carried for six or eight months. I cut out of the local newspaper. I, uh, somebody brought it to me. I cut it out one. I don't know that I can put my hand on it right now. But uh, this article came out of the Greenville paper. And the article said the church has failed. Uh, therefore, advising the young men to get out of the church, leave the church, forsake the church, get out of the church. You wouldn't believe it, but I've got to hear my Bible somewhere. You check with me, and I'll get it tonight. It's in this Bible somewhere. Just a small newspaper clipping. The church has failed, says that article. And, and, and this was a wise professor, college professor, who made that statement to young 20-year-old college students. The church has failed. And he said, get out, leave it, forsake it, abandon the church. It's a sinking ship, abandon ship. Desert it said this religious man to a group of young students on a college campus right here in the city of Greenville. Now, wait a minute. Something wrong with that. 
Now, uh, the world indicts us as having failed as a church. The world expected the church to bring peace. The world expects the church to solve all the social evils. The world expects the church to reform all the, the criminals and clean up all the mess that sin makes, you see. And because the church has not converted the world and made a world avoid of any kind of war or violence, they indict the church with having failed. But let me ask you, is the purpose of God in the preaching of the gospel to convert the world, to reform the world, to change the world, socially or politically or economically? The world indicts the church today because there's poverty in the world. You know, wonder why the world, wonder why the newspapers don't indict the liquor crowd about poverty. Don't you guess those drinking daddies that spend 20 or $25 a week for beer, wine, and whiskey, and, and booze, don't you think they ought to be indicted? If the church is going to be indicted, why don't indict a man that'll spend that kind of money for drink? And his kids go hungry. But the newspapers don't indict the drinker. The newspaper doesn't indict the drunkard. The newspapers charge the church with having failed because there's poverty in the world. Listen, my friend, don't you be naive. You take all that you read in the newspapers with a great big grain of salt and forget it. The church is not put in the world to convert the world or to change the world. The purpose of God in the gospel is to call out a bride for his name's sake. Now, brethren, you the students of the Bible, and uh, Brother Bobby, you're a student of the Bible. Warren, you're a student of the Bible. In addition to many of our members, these men are preachers. Is that right? Am I preaching the truth? Does, did God start the gospel, put the gospel in the world to convert it or to call a bride out of it? You know the answer. If you read the Bible at all, you know the answer. The, the Bible answer to that question is that God put the, the, the gospel in the world and the church into the world not to convert it, but to call out from it a bride, blood-wise, sanctified without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. And one day that bride shall be presented faultless to the bridegroom without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. Now that's the purpose of the gospel. And I'd like to report to you that that purpose moves right on, just as uh, unchecked and unstopped as the mighty Mississippi moving down the Mississippi Valley. God's purpose and the preaching of the gospel is being accomplished. Amen, brother. You say, well, the church doesn't, the gospel doesn't work anymore. We'll have to change our method. Why, you're, you're denying the very purpose of the gospel when you make a statement like that. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I preached to you the other Sunday night on that subject. And how true that is. The gospel works because of the purpose of God. Then, I'd have you note next, the gospel works because of the power of God. God has power to make it operate. Now to the world, what I'm doing is foolish. If some worldly wise man, unsaved, would walk into this building right now, he may be a college graduate, he may be a college professor, but if his mind is dark and his soul is dead, he'd think I was the biggest fool that just ever lived. To see me standing before this great crowd of people, screaming to the top of my voice, preaching out of a Bible that in his study has dust on it, and getting excited about Jesus and excited about religion. Why, he'd say, that's the craziest man I've heard in many a day. What's he doing? He's a nut. He's crazy. He needs uh, the help of the psychiatrist. 
But I'd like to say to you that what I'm doing is God's way. And when I preach the gospel, it's got dynamite in it. In the same first chapter of Romans, down in verses 16 and 17, I read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Suppose I'd say, well, I tell you, I'm, I'm going to memorize Shakespeare, and I'll learn how to quote Macbeth, and I'll put on a drama in the platform, and I'll use Macbeth. Do you think that'll get the job done? Or I'll make a close study of Julius Caesar, and I'll quote much of Shakespeare. you think that'll get the job done? Or I'll bring the newspaper and preach the editorials. you think that'll get the job done? Or I'll bring Reader's Digest and preach out of Reader's Digest. you think that'll get the job done? Never! Brother, here it is in this book. The gospel is the dynamite of God. John 3, 16 has more power in it than that big bomb that dropped over in Vietnam the other day. And you deny the gospel works, you deny the power of God. And you indict God with not being able to do what he said he would do. And then you relegate the word of God to be nothing more than the work of Shakespeare. If this book hasn't got more power than Reader's Digest, then they're both alike. If this gospel and this book has no more power than Shakespeare, they're both alike. But brother, I believe this book's different from Shakespeare and Reader's Digest. I'll never have my lifetime find anybody got converted by those things. But I've found a lot of people that's gotten converted by John 3.16, brother. In our day, we have a lot of folk who seem to, to impress me uh, with the fact that they're intelligent and they're hard to get at. You'll never touch me. I'm case-hardened, and I'm not going to get religion, and I, you'll not touch me. You may as well forget about it. I'm not going to be a foolish Christian like you are, and I'm not going to be a fundamentalist like you are. Just forget it. I've had people give me that impression, and they walk out of the door and something get a hold of them. Something get a hold of them. And they give it a second thought, and next Sunday they're right back here on these pews. And I say to them, I thought you wasn't coming back. I thought you didn't want religion. And they're right back here hearing the same old gospel. And preach to them two or three times to walk down this aisle and get converted, then we'll go together down in that water. You may think you're smart, but you're not too hard for the gospel, brother. I made this statement the other day, and I believe it with all my heart. I don't think any man has ever heard the gospel except he was touched by it. Now, not everybody that's touched by it gets converted, but everybody that hear it is touched by it. Yes, sir. Mighty men have been made to tremble. Great men have been brought low. Yeah. Hard sinners have been softened by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel works because of the power of God. And when the gospel is preached, the blessed Holy Spirit is working and moving and stirring and disturbing and convicting. And every man that hears it has a measure of that power working in his own life. He may turn it down. He may walk away from it. He may hate himself because he's under conviction. But the convicting power of God's a reality nonetheless. The gospel works because of the power of God. Then again... The gospel works because of the providence of God. Now, I don't think people hear the gospel by accident. I think it's God's will that we send the missionaries to the heathen. God planned it from the foundation of the world that every generation reaches many of the heathen as we can with the gospel. 
And the fact that our children own foreign fields tonight is not an accident. That's the providence of God. Do you believe that? Sure, I believe that. Amen. The providence of God working. The fact that Jimmy Rose went down to Brazil, the fact that Margaret Stringer went to New Guinea, the fact that Brother Dan Truax labored those long years in Africa, the fact that our other missionaries are around the world, wherever they may be, is not an accident. It's God's providence. It's God's providence. The fact that I heard the gospel is not an accident. It was the providence of God that I heard the gospel. The fact that you heard it is the providence of God. Your pathway crossed. You didn't plan to get converted. You didn't plan to get saved or something happened. You crossed with the gospel. The fact that Brother Joseph is converted is the providence of God and a miracle. Amen. He didn't plan it, but something got a hold of you, Brother Joseph. You couldn't get away from it, could you? No, sir. And you never will get away from it. Don't want to get away from it. I want him to get more of me. Wonderful. The providence of God. Now, to say that the gospel doesn't work denies the providence of God. And God is a God of providence. God is a God of foreordination. God works things out. Now, I don't know. All I know is to preach. But God knows who to prompt to tune the radio. God knows who to nudge to come to church. God knows who to send to the Sunday school class. God knows who to send Brother Marvin by to knock on that door. Sure he does. That's providence. And the gospel works because of the providence of God. And it's an astounding thing what the gospel can do. I told you the other week about having received that letter from the Catholic priest up in Wisconsin. And that priest said, I've taken a vow of poverty. I have no money. But I've been hearing you preach on the radio. Now I wonder how in the world he tuned me in. Why in the world did he tune me in? He said, I want some of those sermon books you've been writing. And he sent me a dollar's worth of postage stamps. He said, this is all I've got. But I want some of those books. I bundled him up a big uh, handful of my books and sent them back through the mail. The providence of God. And by God's providence, I got to that Roman Catholic priest. Yeah. And you just don't know what God's doing. When we send the missionary around the world, we have no way of knowing what we are doing. But God knows what we're doing. He knows exactly what we're doing. Now, why in the world did God open that door in Haiti? And right now, I'm closing the broadcast in Haiti in five minutes from now. While I'm preaching this pulpit, I'm preaching in Haiti right now. The same sermon you heard me preach the other night. I'm preaching there right now. How do I know but what God opened that door for me to get some, some uh, Haitian boy or Jamaican boy or woman converted? That God may be going to call to be a missionary? Preacher, you're hoping. That's right, but I've seen it happen before. And how do I know but what it won't happen again? You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that God is able in providence to accomplish his will and his purpose in the preaching of God's word. And the gospel works because of the providence of God. Then again, the gospel works because of the people of God. Now may I ask you one question about that? How in the world are you going to keep God's people quiet? Now when a man gets truly converted by the grace of God, how are you going to stop him and, and shut his mouth? Why, you couldn't do that. You might as well think of damming up the Mississippi. You would might as well say to the sun, don't shine tomorrow. You would might as well say to the stars, drape yourself out and don't come out tomorrow night. You would might as well say to the grass under your feet, just lie dead. Don't come out when the sun of the spring begins to shine upon you. 
or brother the son get to that grass, it's going to come out. And that old sun will be shining tomorrow. And the stars will be draped out tomorrow like they have been down through the years. And every man that saved by the grace of God will be telling it. <laughs> He'll be telling it. He'll tell it behind the iron curtain, behind the bamboo curtain. He'll tell it in the prison cell. He'll tell it in the schoolhouse. Tell it on the street. He'll tell it in the store. He'll tell it in the plant. He'll tell it in the automobile. He'll tell it everywhere he goes. How are you going to stop God's people? The gospel works because of the people of God. You get a man converted, you've got another witness. And there's no way in the world to stop that man's mouth. He's going to tell a witness to the grace of God. Is that practical? And then last but not least, the gospel works because of the posterity of God. Now suppose the gospel didn't work. Let, let's, let's imagine now that from uh, this date on, no longer the gospel is going to work. You can preach it, but nothing will happen. Send the missionaries, nothing will happen. Give you tithe money, nothing will happen. Preach on the radio, nothing will happen. Teach it in Sunday school, nothing will happen. From now on, the gospel is not going to work. Well... If that happens, then one by one churches will close their doors and Sunday schools will become disbanded and one by one the ministry will become extinct and finally when all the younger preachers die there won't be any others called. One by one the missionaries will die on foreign fields and there'll be nobody sent to take their place and in a few years if the gospel doesn't work the church dies, preachers are extinct Missionaries are a relic. The Bible gathers dust. Nobody on the streets witnessing. Nobody down on the job honest and upright. Nobody in the community living decent. No. Some churches may close their doors, but it won't be because the gospel doesn't work. It may be because they've forsaken the gospel. And, and there may not be many Christians in the street, but it won't be because the gospel doesn't work. Yes, sir, the gospel works. And God's family will never, never become extinct. The posterity of God demands that the gospel work. There's no other way to get children into God's family except to preach the gospel. And if the gospel doesn't work, then God's family soon will dwindle and die and perish and come to an end. That'll never happen. Oh. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.